Good evening. Um, I've always had a kind of special place since a child in my heart for Good Friday gatherings. Um, the little church we grew up going to is very small. I think um, an average Sunday would have would have been 40, 45 people. Um, I guess max capacity in the building maybe would have been 90. Um, but, but I have these distinct memories of gathering those evenings and something special about those nights when we would remember uh, that Christ had died for us in an intensive way, um, even from being a small child. So my encouragement to you parents who have little ones with you, if you're not, maybe you don't know what they're going to get, I mean, over time, over time this presses in and it begins to make sense. And so for me, from from being a small child, these evening services where we remember uh, Christ's death on the cross have been significant. And one of the things that, that has really been consistent piece of that experience for me has been um, doing my best to, to, to understand that day what the 12 disciples would have been thinking. I mean, they had gone through a lot in that last week. Jesus had entered the city. People received him as a king. And, and, and I know they expected that, that he would be ushered in as the king, and that, that maybe they would throw the Romans out, or at least we'd give it a run. And and by Friday, they're watching him die. Many of them have, have scattered in fear. Um, they're in hiding. Peter, who was his bravest, probably most most public, most most boisterous follower, has denied him and is gone. And Judas, who was one of the twelve, he betrayed him. And. And I want you to just think, if you can, as best you can, to imagine uh, that frame of reference and, and to imagine those small number of people who had really staked their whole lives on following Jesus. People who had left everything, businesses, families, you name it, to, to follow Him and then to see Him beaten and hung on a cross and to, to think as best you can what, what they might have been wrestling with. Trying to sort out what was going on. And trying to make sense of all that they had seen in the last 48 hours. And I think it's important for us to try to place ourselves in that frame of reference. Because I think it, it forces us to try to feel again with, with new emotions. And see again with new eyes the cross. I think sometimes for those of us that maybe grew up in the church, the phrase that Jesus died for our sins and rose again is almost something we could say without thinking about. So I think nights like tonight help us truly think about what that phrase means, that He died for our sins. And it's powerful when we do. No doubt as these first disciples were wrestling with what they had seen and trying to make sense of it, that they would find themselves to the Old Testament Scriptures. Maybe searching to find out what, what would have happened and why things went the way they did. And one of, the, I think, the most significant Scriptures in the Old Testament that foreshadowed what would come on the cross is in Isaiah chapter 53. If you're familiar with that chapter, you know well the words, but I'd like to read them to you. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I would hope that as they wrestled through those events, that that maybe they found their way to that text and maybe it began to make sense of things for them. But there was still a lot that didn't make sense. And one of the beautiful things for me in studying the Old Testament is finding that there were other hints along the way. And so what I want to do tonight is really to tell you two stories, two stories that to me have such a stunning similarity that that it bears mentioning. The first one, like the crucifixion of Jesus, happened on a mountain or a hillside in what would become Jerusalem. It's a mountain known as Mount Moriah, where the temple was placed. And Jesus, this second story, will take place on another hillside just adjacent. This story is recorded in the book of Genesis. It's the story of a man named Abraham. In fact, initially his name was not Abraham, his name was Abram, and God changed his name when he called him. He changed his name to Abraham, which meant father of many, which is an interesting to name a man with no children, whose wife is getting old and is barren. And finally, at 100 years old, God gives them a child and his name is Isaac. And he's dear to Abraham. And one day God calls to Abraham and says, Abraham. Take your son Isaac to the mountain that I will show you where you offer him as a burnt offering to me. And I've always loved the language that he describes Isaac in Genesis because he doesn't just say, take your son Isaac. He says, take your son Isaac, your only son, whom you dearly love. And I want you to take him to Moriah where you offer him as a sacrifice. And so Abram, he listens to God and he uh, makes provision. They, They get bundles of wood that would be necessary for a burnt offering. The things that they would need to travel. Uh, Some of Abraham's servants travel with him a good bit of the way. And as they come near the mountain in Moriah, he dispatches his servants and says, you guys stay here with the donkeys and the pack animals. And Isaac and I will go forward To make the sacrifice. And so Abraham places on Isaac's back the wood for the offering. And they walk up this mountain. And there Abraham makes an altar from this wood. Isaac asks, we don't have a we don't have an offering to give to the Lord. He says, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. And there he binds his son and he lays him on this altar made of wood that Isaac had carried up the mountain himself. And as he raises his hand, God stays his hand and says, don't touch the boy. He says, you've shown me that you fear me because you were willing to give me your only son. The story is a test of Abraham's love for God. See, like many of us, we have a tendency to receive God's gifts and God's blessings and begin to love them more than the giver. 
That we embrace the gift, we rejoice in the gift, and we forget about the one who gave it. And so God tested Abraham's faith to see if he loved him more than anything. And Abraham passes the test. About 6,000 years later, 4,000 roughly, another story happens on a hillside just across town. Where God sent his only son whom he dearly loved. He placed the wood upon his back. And he walked up the hillside. This time there would be no. No substitute sacrifice. This time. The God of heaven and earth. Would nail his own son. To a tree. And he would do what he had not required Abraham to do. I want to tell you the story directly from the scriptures here. In the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 15. Beginning in verse 20. It says, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him away out to be crucified. In verse 33, we find Jesus on the cross dying. And it says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why Have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Saying, wait, let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. In that second story, about a half mile away from where the first one took place. We see the sinless son of God dying for our sin. It's significant in a number of ways for us. One is that. Just as the scriptures described Abraham's love for Isaac, the scriptures tell us God dearly loves his son. There's an affection that they've had from eternity past in perfect unity with one another. And, and, and it, oftentimes when we think about the crucifixion, we sometimes get kind of bogged down in, in the details of the narrative and we don't see the big picture. And, and what I mean by that is we begin to look at, okay, Pilate uh, turned him over to the crowds and the crowds cried out, crucify him. And, and, and we look at all the human agents in the story, but what we fail to see, Isaiah tells us that it was the Lord's will to crush him in this way. And that, that each of these men doing their peace by their own will were unknowingly carrying out the will of God to send his only son to the cross for us. And so while there are human agents and they bear responsibility, this was the will of God 
to put the wood upon his son's back, to walk him up the hill, and there to make a sacrifice of him. The King James Version says it pleased the Lord to crush him. And the reason I think we've got to wrestle with this is that these are significant stories. And, and, and they give us insight into the heart of God here. The, the reason these are even difficult things for me to think about is, is I know what a father's heart is like. I know the affection a father has for a son. Even as imperfect as I am, as selfish as I am in, in my flesh, I know what it is to love a son. And I can't imagine what it would be to give him up to save those who had rebelled. To be honest, if, if your salvation, if the salvation of the world depended upon my willingness to give one of my children to be crucified, uh, you would have no chance. And I'm a generally nice guy. You'd have no chance. There's this infinite love of God that we see in his willingness to allow this to take place to his son. Not only to allow it, but to have set the wheels in motion from eternity past. On the cross, we see the love of God expressed in the clearest, most vivid way you could imagine. And there's a couple things with it that are significant. First is that God did as a father what no father would do. What he would not ask Abram to do himself. And you notice that what he did with Abraham was a test of his love for him. It was to see, did he, did he, love, did he love Isaac more than he loved God? Or would he fear God and would he obey him regardless what he asked? Abraham passed the test. But the whole point of the exercise was to, was to ascertain Abraham's love for God, his fear of God, his trust in God. Because the reality is, is that if he was willing to do that, he would have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he, in fact, loved God more than anything God had ever given him. More than the greatest blessing his son that he ever had, that he loved God more. And the reason that's significant is because God doesn't stop at just preparing the sacrifice, but rather he goes forward and executes. And the scriptures are cluing us in here in this story in the Old Testament that this is a test of love that he would complete the steps and finish the sacrifice and send his own son through this. So I have... The cross stands as the single most significant, irrefutable evidence of the love of God. Not only did he send his son to die, he sent his son to die for rebellious men and women. And this is where the cross becomes, I think, so vivid in its depiction of God's love. Because there's two things on display. And him sending Jesus to die for us, there's an obvious display of his love. But the manner in which Jesus died is an obvious, unmistakable display of the depth of our depravity and sin. You look at, at, at the way we treated the sinless Son of God. That when he pays the penalty for our sin, it is in such a brutal and horrific fashion. It is a clear communication to all who would see and all who would hear of the brutality of our own sin. 
And it's easy for think for us to think about this as, as some generic means, the, the sins of the world, but rather not to think about the sins of my own heart, my own actions, my own wicked thoughts and rebellion against God, that, that all of that and all of its ugliness is put on display as Jesus is tortured and beaten and hung on a cross to die in a public fashion. And so we see the depth of our sin and depravity, the need and the, the, the requirement of the judgment that was upon us. And we see the love of God that He sent His Son as a substitute. And in looking at those two kind of really contrasting depictions, the perfect righteousness and love of God and the vile, disgusting, abhorrent, violent nature of our sin. Now, now when you see those two together and you recognize that He loves us in spite of it, God doesn't love us because we're okay. He, he loves us in spite of our absolute, utter wickedness. It's not that He doesn't see it. It's not that He's just blinded by, by all of our other positive qualities. That's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture said we had no redeeming qualities. We had run so far from Him. And yet looking at that, looking at our wickedness and His perfect righteousness, He loves us anyway. In spite of all that we've done. In Romans chapter 5, the Scripture tells us that, that seldomly would someone die for a good man, but Christ shows His love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we hadn't taken a single step towards Him, we hadn't done one thing that, that might hint that we could, could clean our act up on our own, but that God, looking upon our sinfulness and our rebellion, sent His Son to pay the penalty for our sin. This is love that the world has never seen. Galatians chapter 3, the Scriptures tell us further how the cross worked. In verse 13 it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And what's going on here is there was a saying, a common saying, that anyone who's hung on a tree who dies in that way is cursed. Just consistent with, with what Isaiah told us we would think of him. That we would consider him smitten and afflicted by God. But that Jesus redeemed us from the curse, from the punishment of our sin and our inability to live righteously before God. By becoming the curse for us. By bearing it upon His shoulders. And in doing that, He gave us not only a, a declaration of being not guilty, but adoption into the family of God that we receive the blessing of His children. So if, if you were to think about this in terms of justice and right payment, those of us, which is all of us, who have turned from God and deserve His judgment, that, that it would have been amazingly gracious for God to have simply declared us not guilty. And then when we die, to just disappear into nothingness. That, that would have been gracious. But you notice that he goes further than that. 
He sends His Spirit to us. He draws us into His family so that we can share in the blessing of being His children. And all of this happens. Because Jesus went to the cross for us. He died in our place. And we'll celebrate Sunday that He rose again. And because of those things that He did, we stand in God's grace through faith if we have believed. And it's so beautifully simple. If you, you hear the good news that, that we are sinners deserving judgment from God. And then He sent His only Son to, to pay for our sin, to take the penalty that we deserve upon His back as He was beaten, flogged, and crucified for us. That, that if you trust Him, you trust that He did that for you and that He rose again, all of your sins are forgiven. It's that simple. It's so simple, it's hard for us to understand. It's got to be more complicated. And so we, we invent kind of religious ideas and, and practices that if you do this and we throw stuff on top of that, but the simple message of the gospel is, do you believe it? Do you trust that He is who He says He was and He did what He said He would do? And we're welcomed into the family. And behind the scenes, if you were to pan out like you do at the end of the movie and you get the big view, you're going to find a father who dearly loved his son, but loved those who rebelled against him so much he was willing to send that son to his own death on the cross. And that means everything we go through, no matter what it is, we go through life with the evidence that is undisputable undisputable of His kind intention towards us. That He loves us dearly. God knows we are prone to forget this. He knew that as we would deal with struggles in life, that we would begin to doubt His love. That we would take our eyes away from what Christ had done on the cross for us and we would look at this small issue that we might be wrestling with. And so one of the gifts He gave us is a time to gather like tonight and to celebrate and remember that Jesus died for us. That He was brutally beaten where we deserved it. That He tasted death and the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin in our place. The Apostle Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians that on the night that Jesus betrayed, He took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And that he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And likewise, after dinner, he took the cup and he blessed it and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood that is poured out for you. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. So that we gather together as the people of God, as His children, redeemed by His Son's blood to remember this. This object lesson, this prop that God's kind of planted in our lives as a reference point to go back to. To remember His love for us. Tonight we want to take the opportunity to do this. I'd ask those that are going to be helping if you would come forward. We get the opportunity to remember that we are partakers of His blood. Partakers of His body in a spiritual sense that He gave up His life so that we could have it. He...
that he suffered in our place. That he endured the agony that we deserved. And that in that there is hope. I would encourage you, if you're here tonight and you've never placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for your sins, that tonight would be the night. It's not complex. It, it doesn't require special magic words. What it, what it does require is the recognition in your heart that you stand before a holy God deserving of judgment and the belief that that God in love, sent His only Son to die for you. And He rose Him again. And if you will just trust Him tonight, the Bible is abundantly clear that all of your sins are forgiven and that you're brought into a new family. You're given the Spirit of God within you to strengthen you, to give you the ability to walk faithfully with Him, to serve Him, to have joy beyond the circumstances in front of you. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. He promises to never leave or forsake you. You'll never go through anything alone. That's the promise on the table. And that when we leave this place, we will be received with Christ in glory. Or He will return before we die and establish His kingdom. And either one is phenomenal. If you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would implore you to do it right where you sit. Today, to, to cry out to Him as you pray. Communicate to Him that your love for Him, your need for Him, and that you trust Him. As we take of the Lord's table, we're going to ask you to come forward row by row and go towards the nearest uh, station where we've got some people that will have the bread and the cup. We'd ask you to tear a piece of the bread off and just to dip it in the cup and then go back to your seat. If you want to pray together as a family, you want to pray alone, that's your decision. We'd ask you to make the most of this time with the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your infinite love you demonstrated to us on the cross. For your willingness to send your only beloved son to die for us. To do what you would ask no man to do. And I pray that the love that you displayed would become constantly evident in our lives. And we would trust you. That you'd never let the price of our redemption that was paid on that hillside 2,000 years ago, get, get too far from our hearts. Father, I pray that as we remember His death and we're confronted with the depth of our sin and the infinite nature of Your love, that our hearts would be turned to You again pray that this time of communion with you and the saints would be a time of peace and rest in you. A time of renewal. In Jesus' name, amen.